Welcome back to the Afros and Knives podcast. I am your host, Tiffany Rozier, and this week's conversation is with storyteller, writer, and creator of the blog Fed and Bougie, Brittany Hudson. We deep dive into Black food, food media, and food revolutions. This is a two-parter, which was bound to happen sooner or later, so let's jump in. Well, hello. Uh, my name is Brittany Hudson. Um, I think of myself as a storyteller, so um, my interest in storytelling goes back to when I was a child. Um, it's funny because growing when I was about, I would say, three years old, um, I used to make storybooks and I would draw all of the characters. I would draw the story out, but because I wasn't able to actually write the words at the time, I would have my mom sit with me and I would uh, tell the story to her so, so she could write it down for me to complete, you know, my, my books. So, um, growing up, I, I always envisioned myself, you know, being a writer. I wanted to write a novel, maybe be a magazine editor one day. And then fast forward, um, I kicked off my career in journalism when I was a junior at Howard university. Uh, I was on the student newspaper called the Hilltop, which was a uh, shout out to HU, you know, um, so, yeah. <laughs> So my junior year, I landed, um, my first internship was at Black Enterprise Magazine. So I spent the summer working there. Um, was an v- awesome experience. I loved it. And actually, after that summer, going back to school, I had the opportunity to freelance for the magazine uh, for a couple, uh, I'd say a couple years after that, you know, even after graduating college. And the summer I graduated from Howard, I interned at Essence Magazine. Uh, working in the work and wealth department. And then the summer after that, I was actually fortunate enough to get an internship with the Wall Street Journal. Um, At the time, they had an internship for postgraduates, which was, you know, like perfect timing for me um, because, you know, who wouldn't want to have Wall Street Journal on your resume? So uh, those uh, three internships, I say, created the foundation for what has now led to a 10-year career in print journalism. And recently I've added radio to my repertoire. And um, taking that experience in journalism, I've uh, used that to parlay it into food writing. So the way I do that is I have, I created my own blog called Fed and Bougie, which I started in late 2017. And the idea behind the blog was that I wanted to tell stories about people in food. Um, I know a lot of the food content, at least from my perspective, that I would see online was, you know, blogging and focused on recipes. But I think having that journalism background, you know, I said, I I really want to know about the people, like who are the people in the food industry, especially those of us of color, you know, being a black woman. Um, And I currently live in Detroit. I'm originally from New York, so I went from New York to D.C. and now to Detroit. So being in a city like Detroit where you're in the middle of seeing all the changes that are happening, um, you know, it's exciting. Um, It's a great time to, I think, be a journalist or a storyteller in the city. Um, But yeah, so using Fed and Bougie, I I wanted to use that to tell stories of people in food. And since I have a, a background of writing about entrepreneurship through, you know, obviously black enterprise, that's where I kind of tie, 
you know, meet that intersection. So a lot of the stories I write um, for the blog and as well as freelance, I do freelance writing for local publications in Detroit. Um, a lot of my stories are centered around uh, entrepreneurship or, you know, the community, which was another aspect I really loved about being in Detroit is that the city is still small, is big, but yet it's small enough where you still get that sense of this community that's working together to, you know, make their home better. Uh, so yes, uh, a lot of the writing I do is focused at the intersection of community, entrepreneurship, and then of course had to throw in the culture, which is where the Anne Bougie comes from. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Uh, I know when I first saw the name of the blog, I was just like, mm-hmm, yep, this feels right in my spirit. It does. Oh, <laughs> <that's so awesome. laughs> I was like, yeah, that Anne Bougie, mm-hmm, that sounds about right. Um, but th- I thank you for sharing some of that background with me. I, um, I feel like we, you know, we had grown up in the same part of, I grew up in New Jersey. And so if we had either, if we had grown up and gone to the same school, we would likely would have been friends. Um, because I have, oh, absolutely. I have so yeah. many similar memories. Like there's this photograph of me sitting in our living room. I was probably like nine or eight or nine at the time. And we used to, um, when my grandmother uh, moved up from Florida and homeschooled us for a couple of years and because the school system was just getting so bad. And there's, so we had these desks that we got from like a, a random school that shut down or something like that. And I, there was a picture of me at one of these desks with my, with my paper and me like creating some type of story or book or something at that point. And I was just like, wow. Um, I remember those moments where you're like creating your own storybook and, and yeah, and just that idea of like, I had always wanted to work in journalism and I had been an editor in chief of my uh, high school newspaper. And then it just, you know, I, I took a completely different path at some point, but what's hilarious is that my life Life has really brought me back to this, this to storytelling again, and um, it just it never, you really never escape it. I think it's that kind of insatiable curiosity about people and things and processes and and you know there's just the things in the world that exist and like trying to understand why they exist and what they exist for and um, and kind of getting there and getting the story out to people. So uh, so yeah, I absolutely kind of I relate to that path at least in my head. Um, so because I'm. Um, I'm, I'm working my way back into it. Like I started at uh, Penn State in their digital um, journalism and media program uh, last year. And so I was just like, oh, nice. you know what? let's just do this. Because it was after cooking for so long, I was just, I found myself more interested in the stories behind the food and the people growing it and building um, building lives around it. And opposed to me, like being in a kitchen, as much as I love it, it was just like, I found myself definitely drawn into the stories behind it. So um, to your, you know, to, to what you were, what you finished with about, um, being in Detroit at this point, uh, that was definitely something that I was like those stories that I was drawn to those stories on this, on the, uh, blog when I was going through all your, all your pieces there. And I was just like, no one ever really talks about what's happening specifically in like food and agriculture and, and, um, things like that in Detroit. So like, what's your, um, cause you said things are, are growing and, you know, it's a community of people that are kind of pulling their community together to get it to move forward and, and to, um, to elevate it again. And I know they, you know, Detroit was that city that everyone is, it was kind of like this visual example of what can happen when a 
community is taken advantage of, um, when people are, you know, act out of greed and not out of generosity. And so you can see what happens when, you know, those types of things and behaviors work their way up into government and into major um, corporations and business. It destroys a neighborhood and it destroys a community. So at this point, like, what are you seeing in Detroit? Like, what are the, what, you know, what can we all be paying attention to and throwing our support behind and what stories are really interesting for you right now? Oh, yeah. Well, first, Tiffany, I want to say thank you so much for, you know, checking out the blog and um, sharing that perspective on what you got from it. Because, you know, as, as I'm sure you know, being a creative, um, whether it's podcasting, writing, you know, when you're in the midst, you know, in the, the midst of it, you're kind of like, is anybody seeing this? I wonder if this is resonating with people. Right. <laughs> so right. I'm like, I'm work. talking to a large, empty room. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Um, and to your question, uh, so what am I seeing around here that I think is really exciting that people, you know, should really pay attention to? Um, I got connected here to an organization called Food Lab Detroit. It's a uh, nonprofit food incubator where they assist food entrepreneurs in growing their business. So, you know, that could be someone who wants to sell pies at the farmer's market, you know, all the way up to, you know, having a brick and mortar. So um, this community, they have about, uh, last time I checked, around 200 or so members. So that to me was like one entryway of understanding who are the people behind the food and the stories. And through getting connected with that group, I started to really learn more about like you said, agriculture and how that plays a role in the food ecosystem. And um, there's really a strong emphasis. I, I never been even between New York and DC because I actually grew up in Long Island. So I wasn't in the in New York City. But being in Detroit, actually seeing the role of agriculture and farmers and how they fit into, you know, the landscape and the process of food here was very interesting to me. Um, you know, there's a group here called the, let me look it up here so I don't misname it, but Detroit Black, Detroit Black Community Food Security Network. Mm. And um, they have a long history here going back to the early two, 2000s. And actually there is a book called uh, Freedom Farmers written by Dr. Monica White, and she really talks about the role of farmers in our nation's history. And mm-hmm. there is a chapter about uh, what we call them DBCFSN and the role they have played in Detroit. Because what struck me to be interesting coming, you know, being an outsider from Detroit and moving, being a transplant coming here, is that a lot of the narratives I was seeing was very uh, white male focused. So it was very white male chef focused or, you know, white male, you know, white male starting urban gardens, gardens in the city. And it's like, hold up, like this is still a predominantly black city. So, you know, where's the disconnect? Like what's going on here? Um, And an organization like DBCFSN has been doing it, you know, has been on the ground working long before, you know, these other, you know, urban, stories of urban farmings and right. urban picked up. So that in that book, Freedom Farmers, you know, Dr. Monica talks about their history and how they're very community centric. And it's not just about, you know, we're growing food and, you know, that's definitely important, like growing your own food and not relying on a capitalist system. Right. 
Um, but like I said, they're also about community. You know, they want to educate people on how to eat better, um, educate people on how they can, you know, grow their own farm. And they're creating, you know, a space for people in the city who have felt left out because of certain changes that have happened um, in a space where, you know, adults and children can come together. And um, it's a very positive and, and, and uplifting um, and inspirational story. Um, so between uh, Food Lab Detroit and organizations like DBCFSN, and then that's just a small segment because I, I, I think there's about 1,600 um, farms or gardens wow. in the city. Wow. Yeah, like I didn't yeah. even know that. So it, it, it's serious. <laughs> like, oh the, gosh, yeah. I just it's funny that I, like I lived, I grew up in South Jersey, just right outside of Philadelphia, and then I moved back there a few years ago. And the emergence of urban farming in like northern Philadelphia, because I feel like North Philly is kind of it's a, it's almost a twin sister to Detroit. They have a lot of the very similar ills, um, a lot of the same levels of corruption and government and things like that, and they combat these things. That, almost in the same way. Um, you know, there's uh, quite a few like organizations that have popped up and some of them are grassroots. Some of them are a bit more um, kind of come from some of the academic um, institutions in Philadelphia, but they reminded me so much of, I wa- recently watched in um, a documentary called Urban Roots about the urban farming um, uh uh, trend that's growing in in Detroit, and then when you start to hear the interviews and watch people, you know, and hear them talk about what they've been doing, and you realize how long it's been going, and the fact that mm-hmm. urban farming is not a trend for most communities of color. They are essential mm-hmm. to our survival. And so they've existed forever. I remember growing up in my neighbors having tomatoes and things like that growing in their gardens and, you know, your grandparents who had, you know, beans or, um, uh, you know, those kind of basic crops growing in their, in their yards. And like my grandfather, even now he still lives in New Jersey and he has a small garden in his backyard. And I feel like, you know, African-Americans and farming have always gone hand in hand, even before enslaved people ended up, you know, um, be, pull, getting pulled into uh, the colonialism of this particular landmass. But it's always been a part of our history. It's kind of, it's in our blood, essentially. And so the fact that, you know, I'm, you're seeing this activity in Detroit that it's just, I think it's not so much that it hasn't existed. It's just now that it's being seen. People are telling the stories because it eventually we will all have to revisit this way of life. We're going to have to revisit this type of food system. And while, you know, they celebrate the, the white chef that is using the product that's coming from, you know, their own gardens and farms and they're coming from local farmers and things like that, they forget like this has existed in black community for a very long time. And we typically, (laughs) you can usually find something that that person has grown on the dinner table at some point. And so it's just always fascinating to me to see how people get very excited about something that comes off as trendy. Um, this is the first time they're hearing about it, but it's just part of how a lot of us grew up. I remember my great aunt passing and then her pantry was full of, of produce that she had like preserved in glass jars and pickled and things like that. And so I'm used to seeing it and it's not unfamiliar, especially in these urban areas where people don't think 
anyone's growing anything. I mean, I grew up in a part of the city where people were like, I don't go into that neighborhood. It's a little dangerous. But then we had neighbors who had like chickens and roosters and we had a, we had a live chicken house um, like 10 minutes from our house and you could just go by there, pick a chicken and they would butcher it and feather it for you. And this was, you know, like in you know the early 80s. And so for me, I'm just like, this has always been a part of the conversation for us, like we knew it was there and it's just nice to see like the stories are finally being told. And this is like definitely one of the things I loved about um, reading your blog and like sharing your blog. I was just like, um, I think people need to be reading these stories because I know y'all think this is new, but it's <laughs> not, it really isn't. Um, we, we've been at this for a long, long time. And so, um, yeah, it's really, for me, it's always like that, that's some of my favorite type of, of journalism and storytelling um, is really focused around farming and wherever it happens um, and not just in the traditional sense. I think the, the idea, the act of growing your own food and feeding yourself and your, your family and your neighbor, your neighbor is just kind of one of those incredible, incredible things people can do um, for each other to, to take care of each other. So I, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's really fascinating to me because um, I didn't grow up that way. So I grew up, you know, with a single mother. It was myself and my brother. And, you know, my mom, she's awesome. Like, of course, she did the best she could. And she did a great job, if I say so. <laughs> but um, and then, like, I have to say, like, also growing up, I was very interested in the civil rights movement. I remember I was in third grade just doing independent reading about the civil rights movement. So I think between just my interest in storytelling, um, our history, going to Howard University, and then coming here to Detroit. I, I've, like, I'm a student at this too, you know, I, like I'm still learning. And as I go along, that's why, you know, as I write these stories, I'm even, you know, learning stuff from it. So to me, like, it's even, have I think, even having an effect on my identity as a Black woman, um, like I said, understanding our history. And also, um, I also try to be respectful, like you mentioned earlier about, you know, people coming into Detroit and taking advantage of it. Um, I really want to be respectful as I can. Um, that's why I also wanted to, like, through these stories, pay homage to these people that are doing this work. And like you said, it's, this, this isn't new. It's just, you know, getting more eyes and attention on it, but it's not new. So I try to be like, toe that line between being respectful, but also understanding. Um, and I really hate this word, but being a millennial, I'm sorry. I, <laughs> I, I work, my day job is in tech. So whenever oh. we talk about like users, it's always like millennials, but being a millennial, I um, try to toe that line between, okay, how can I be a student of the game, understand the history, learn the history, but also put that um flavor on it like like my life like that's why I said with Fed and Bougie I, I I think you can see you can see it in different ways right so Fed and Bougie could be oh you know Fed literally food and you're bougie about it so that could be like you know being into wine going to you know being a brunchanista you know all those things that we've come to enjoy and have made into a culture unto <laughs> itself but also I think of it as being fed knowledge, right? So, um, yeah, that, that, that's why I think you can interpret fed and bougie in, in so many different ways. And then um, just outside of the agriculture movement, like some other things I think that are awesome in Detroit, um, 
we say here like the future of food is female. And I, I think that's like a hashtag on Instagram now, but seeing the community of black women here, like they are the real superstars. I mean, and we know that like in black history, the black woman is the queen. She has held things down. Like you said, she is the cook, the maid, you know, the mother, you know, all of that. So seeing black women on the front lines of the food movement, I don't think you get that from traditional media here, but I, that's one thing I've come to, um, I want to work into my plans in, in considering the future of Fed and Bougie is really honing in on black women in food and how they are, um, you know, making strides and being leaders in this field, especially when we're at a uh, coming off the heels of, you know, hashtag me too, which we know was started by a black woman. So I think getting black, uh, affording black women that do that they deserve is extremely important to me. And one way I want to use my platform, however I can to help push that story along. Um, there's even conversations here in Detroit about, you know, how do we change restaurant culture, you know, and that could mean, uh, equitable wages, what, you know, uh, living wages, um, you know, combating sexual harassment in, in the restaurant industry. So there's a lot of work being done here. And that's why I said, it's like a really awesome time to look at Detroit, like Detroit's obviously getting a lot of national recognition. Um, one of uh, a local chef, Kiki Loyal, who is the co-owner of a all-day brunch cafe here called Folk Detroit, was featured in the New York Times last month in that story about the 16 Black chefs um, in the, that the New York Times profiled. You know, so word is definitely getting around. <laughs> um, some other things Detroit is focusing on, there's conversations about, you know, food waste. Uh, which was also new to me. I'm like, oh, I never thought, you know, of something like that. So like I said, it's very, very interesting. Wow. I'm like, food waste is such, um, it's interesting. (laughs) I know I'm like, um, it's really interesting where the conversation around food waste starts to get energized. Um, I remember like, because I, of course, like working in a restaurant kitchen and like my current, um, my current position uh, as a city manager for a food company or food business here in Arizona, food waste is definitely kind of one of the, on the, in the conversation all the time now. And so it's one of those things I talk about consistently with like clients and with other people. And even with my own work, I try to find ways to like cut back on waste and things like that. But I remember when the the conversation started to kind of heat up a little bit around this idea of like Americans wasting 44% of the food they consume and, you know, how much is going into landfills and how much energy it takes to create a single piece of food or a single piece of fruit or a vegetable. And I'm always intrigued that there is this, the conversations around food waste tend to start in communities, uh, like low economical communities. And Mm. it's kind of interesting because I'm just like, well, when you think about poverty and the access to food and how many of these neighborhoods and communities are food deserts, um, they don't have access to fresh produce and things like that. I'm always, I always wonder why they kind of start this conversation around food waste in these communities because you would think like the the lack of access to food would would naturally produce less waste because there's just not as the volume's not there there's not as much going in you don't have major grocery store chains and things like that in a lot of these neighborhoods so like where is this waste being produced and then after a few years it occurred to me like there's so much like I would, I call it non-food things in boxes and and, and bags that don't have any really real nutritional value. Mm -hmm. Um, 
the, the, there, you know, the, just the packaging alone is uh, creates a tremendous amount of waste. Um, and then a lot of it, you know, a lot of the food products come to these neighborhoods and that's where they're sent kind of at the end of the line. And so it's one of like the last places they go before they essentially become actual food waste um, in a landfill. And I'm just kind of like, okay, that's just another, it's just another layer of the conversation around how we feed the, how we feed communities that don't have access and how we treat them. And like, you okay, so it's kind of like the garbage dump and you put all the stuff nobody else wants to eat into these neighborhoods and you squeeze them into these liquor stores and places like that. And in opposed to like putting things there that will nourish a community of people. And so it's like where, you know, for me, I'm like the attitudes towards food waste and, um, and, and like I said, neighborhoods uh, that have more economic challenge than others. It's those two things just tend to go hand in hand. Like it automatically comes up whenever you see a story, a lot of times about food waste, they're instantly in, you know, an urban area where there's a large pile of garbage and so on and so forth. And it just never seems to, the light never seems to find its way over into more affluent neighborhoods. Um, Mm-hmm. in places like that. And so it's just, for me, it's like another space of like a very odd kind of inequality when it comes to how food is circulated in the system. So, um, I, and you can tell I have a lot of, I have a lot of thoughts around these topics <laughs> and I lots of rants around these topics. I was just like, Tiff, you need to just, you know, put those down on paper somewhere and leave people alone. But, um, you know, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's, you know, let's talk about it. Let's have that you know, conversation, you know, I just, am like, cause if I, you know, for me, I'm like, I know, I'm like, I know my people. And if you give them fresh produce, it gets eaten, it doesn't get wasted. And that's why I'm just kind of like, it's so interesting to me that you've tied this issue to the wrong group of people yet again you know mm-hmm. the, people, the people who don't have the tools or the resources to do anything about it like what do you what do you expect from someone who barely had a meal today like what do you want them to do about your food waste problem you know so so yes so that I'm like, I, can, I can go on on that one for about 20 minutes but uh, <laughs> but uh, back to uh, back to you and and your work um, for you know for someone who has not like read any of your material or read any of your work uh, what what is your kind of your most recent um, work outside of your blog like are we can we find you in like magazines right now or writing for any specific newspaper or publication that someone can like go out and pick up or um that's available to pretty much the you know the national public and not necessarily someone who's um living specifically in Detroit at this point yes so um as I mentioned earlier, I do do freelance writing um, in addition to the blog. Um, my day job, I work in tech as a UX researcher, but um, I've been contributing to, I mean, they're local publications, but you can definitely find them online. So I've written for Eater Detroit. Um, and, and as we all know with Eater, um, it may not exactly tie back to, you know, these issues we're talking about, but, you know, when you're trying to build up your portfolio and then, you know, so those were some good opportunities there. Um, so Eater Detroit has been fun. I actually did a piece uh, last fall about, you know, if you were to have to be in Detroit for 24 hours, like where should you eat? So I definitely made sure to highlight uh, some awesome black uh, owned restaurants and bakeries you should definitely check out if you haven't been here and it's your first time uh, so people can definitely find that. Um, I've written for an independent uh, online magazine called Tostada Magazine, which was started by uh, a Latina journalist that I had the pleasure of meeting 
here in Detroit uh, during a conference called the Allied Media Conference. And she also started to start a magazine out of frustration with traditional media. And her her, uh, publication also focuses on the intersection of food and identity and uh, culture and community. Let's see. Um, To like pull up my roster here. Uh, let's see. I recently did a, um, radio fellowship with, uh, WDET here in Detroit. And, uh, actually that was the first time I did radio. So it was very interesting. Cause like I said, when I was at Howard, you know, I, I first started I, in journalism at the school paper. So I've always been print all the way through. <laughs> so radio was something I'm like, okay, this is different. You know, this is going to stretch me out of my comfort zone. Um, but I actually ended up really liking it like as another way to do storytelling. Um, and it's, it's kind of, it's using different muscles, but the same muscles at the same time as you are in print. But one thing I, I was surprised at that I didn't think I would enjoy was now I started thinking about telling stories through, um, the ear and through sound and how that works. So through that fellowship, um, I produced two feature stories. One was focused on a black owned restaurant, um, on the East side of Detroit. And, um, again, being a black owned restaurant on the East side in a city going through changes, how are they establishing, you know, community? How are they establishing their place as, you know, kind of like, uh, I think it's a sociology term, uh, third place. You know, so third place is you have your home, then you have a work, and then you have somewhere in the community, whether that's like a coffee shop or, you know, something like that, where you could go and, you know, socialize with your neighbors or, you know, just somewhere else, another uh, location that you can be. So that story really focused on a profile of that restaurant. And then the second story I did was more of a... Um, more of a historical and investigative piece. So I wanted to focus on like kind of to your point before, um, you know, there's a lot, in addition to all these awesome things going to Detroit, there are still, you know, serious issues that people, you know, we still need to work through one of which is being food insecurity. So, but for me, I, I wanted to really, take that issue and put a more empowering spin on it. I didn't want it to completely be, oh, you know, you know, Detroit's so food insecure. Like we, we've heard that, that. I feel like that gets beaten over the head, you know, it's being like a dead horse. So <laughs> for that story, I, I said, okay, well, I want to talk about the entrepreneurs who are, what are they doing to fight food insecurity in Detroit? So um, uh, it, it was also a historical piece because um, it was based on a the Kerner report in the late 1960s that came out and uh there was there's an organization here in Detroit called Focus Hope and based on the Kerner report they took that and started exploring like you know what was the cause of it what was going on at the time and what Focus Hope found was that there was a uh discrepancy between uh the cost of food in black and white communities so take it was kind of like okay let's look at the past and let's look at now and see what's going on is anything different and um overall no i mean the issue looks different today compared to back then but essentially it's still the same and so taking that look from 
back then to now and then seeing, okay, well, what are we doing now to fight that issue? So that's why I brought in, you know, two entrepreneurs who had, who won, um, uh, a young man named Raphael Wright. Um, he's had some national attention because he's trying to open a black owned grocery store in Detroit. And then the other entrepreneur, um, her business is focused on, um, you know, having like a sort of cafe where they actually partner with uh, gas stations and schools and hospitals to provide, you know, fresh uh, salads, sandwiches and things of that nature to folks. So that was a really awesome experience doing that radio fellowship. Uh, Let's see, recently I wrote a story for another local organization, but online called Model D Media. And going back to what I mentioned before about how women are on the front lines really doing the work in city in in Detroit, um, the story focused on uh, four women who each own, you know, their own restaurants in the city. And they're actually coming together as a group and they're opening a new restaurant expanding another one of their older restaurants and also opening um, their own hospitality group, which would, you know, all of this is uh, women led. So I think that's, that was really awesome and groundbreaking um, in doing that reporting. You know, I, I didn't find really a lot of examples of something like that. So I think that's really awesome for people to check out. Let's see. Um, yeah, I think that pretty much hits on a lot of the work I've been doing over the past year and a half, uh, doing food writing. Um, I think another story um, I wrote that when I first started building my portfolio, which was really fun, was uh, how Detroiters are building a community around plant-based eating. So that's another thing where, where I say, like, you know, when we look at culture and how we black people are the center of it and we make it and we're making those moves. Um, usually I feel like when we think of veganism, it's very um, trendy. It's very white. <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Very elitist, you know. Yeah. 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 Uh-huh. But through this story, I wanted to show, you know, veganism for black and brown people aren't about, you know, you know, these brightly colored smoothie bowls and, you know, these, um, $12 salads that people are showing on, on Instagram and all that stuff, but it's really about survival. You know, it's actually going back to our history. Like we were saying earlier, Mm -hmm. you know, tying in that farming aspect, you know, eating food that you've grown, food that's come from the earth. And, um, so I think that was a really, I, I really loved that piece. Um, so I wrote that for Testata magazine. So I would highly suggest um, people check that out. And I, I also include a lot of the freelance work that I've done on Fan and Bougie as well. There's a link on there called uh, Published Works, I believe. So that's one way people can find, you know, all these things in one spot instead of and you could also Google my name. Of course, <laughs> oh, of course. That's, you know, that's, that's, that's how my, that's how my search started. I was like, oh, okay. Uh, cause I, right. I kept seeing the, the fed and bougie come up in my Instagram and I was like, okay, well, what is, and then I had one, uh, another person I had interviewed mentioned like you, have you gone to this? Have you gone to the, the blog? Have you read any of the material yet? So I got in there and I was just like, well, uh, I'm like, you know what I'm gonna do with my ass to see if she got some time right to talk. <laughs> and, uh, she seemed busy though. She seemed busy, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, I was just like, uh, and it's, you know, it's funny, like, and it kind of segues me into the, um, the, you know, the next bit of, uh, 
few questions I have for you, because as a person who is currently making a career transition into writing, um, into food writing specifically professionally, I've just been like, it's been an interesting journey. I'm like having worked in food and you, and I talk, I talk to people a lot about it. It's one of those things where I find myself in conversation around it. And then it, I, you know, by the time we get to the end, they're like, you should, you should write about that. You should, you know, I'm like, and I ignored it for a very long time. They're like, you seem like you have a lot to say and that people kind of listen to you when you do talk about it. Maybe you should try it. And so after a while, I was like, well, I guess I can, I can make an attempt. And then, you know, my family was like, but you've always wanted to be a writer. You've always wanted to work in journalism. Like, why doesn't this make sense to you? And for me, girl, and for me, like, even now I have a, a certain, a few publications who were like, Hey, can you pitch us a couple of story ideas and blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, uh, okay. Um, so I, you know, I was just like, why, you know, and it's funny. Cause I've been like challenging myself to like move to like dig deep a little bit and find out out why what the block is for me like is it a, a lack of self-confidence is, is it not believing that I have anything to say really and like you know because I get to a place where it does feel like I'm either talking into the void or I'm just kind of going on a rant and I just there's no I don't have a direction for where I'm headed I just kind of someone drops a topic and I'm kind of off and running because it's just something I th- it's a topic I think about a lot or do a lot of research on and I just find it fascinating and like making the transition from oh I find that fascinating to well maybe other people will too. I just haven't seemed to, I haven't managed to bridge that gap for myself yet. And I'm like, and I know I'm not the only one that is like interested, especially as a person of color, like interested in food writing and kind of jumping into um, those waters. And so for me, I'm just, I'm interested in your, in, in your process, in your journey. Like you, you know, you went to school and you had these incredible opportunities um, to like, to write, you know, in a professional setting and things like that. But for me behind that, like, what was your kind of your internal journey? Like, like, you know, cause I think writing is definitely one of those, it requires a certain type of courage because you are, you know, you're, you're taking something that of course that's kind of close to you cause you're creative and, and you're putting it out there in the world and hoping that somebody else kind of resonates with the words and, uh, you know, resonates with the story. So what was your kind of your internal dialogue during that process and, you know, kind of where you are now with, you know, your approach to writing a piece or putting a, putting uh, a story out into the world? Oh, Lord. So you kind of hit on that. <laughs> the uh, internal dialogue. So um, I will say uh, definitely, like you said, you know, feeling unsure of yourself. Uh, that comes into play all the time. I mean, it took me years. And I, I was going to say, you're you're doing exactly what I would say, because um, making space for yourself on, on the Internet and showing, you know, your content. And that's what I liked about Fed and Bougie. I'm like, OK. Um, you know, I have experience writing for publications, but this is my, you know, little piece on in this, you know, big hole called the internet. Like it's my space. I can talk about what I want. I can write it how I want, <laughs> you know, um, more or less. But um, it was actually my husband. He, because um, I've always loved food, you know, I, I collect cookbooks, you know, like I like to cook, I like to bake. So he had been telling me for years, um, you know, why don't you, you need to do a blog. And I'm like, eh, no, you know, like everybody does that. No, I think I'm good. Um, but like I said, being in Detroit and just seeing what was going on, I'm like, you know, I, like, and like you said, 
you know, you try to run away from it. Like when I went to grad school, you know, I took a break from journalism. Not, I wouldn't say a hundred percent break because I was still kind of writing a little bit for uh, the school's marketing communications department. So I didn't completely run away from it, but I don't think I had that inspiration of like, okay, well, what do I, you know, want to talk about or what I want to write about and coming in contact with folks in Detroit. I'm like, wow, like, I want to, I want to tell these stories. I want, I want to do that. So that's where the, my, I, I, I say I got rejuvenated. That's where my inspiration came from. And I'm like, obviously this is food, which is something I, you know, I personally love. And, um, so that, that's how I kind of formulated that. But, um, in the beginning, uh, I will say I wasn't very consistent just because of life, you know, things are going on. Um, that the year after I started the blog, I was getting married. So that took up a lot of my time, of course, um, having to transition jobs. So a lot of that kind of took me away from it. But I, even today, um, I still deal with those issues of, um, I have, I get anxiety a lot. <laughs> like, and then, I mean, I, People call it writer's block, but I've read things that say, well, it's not, it's not writer's block. It's, you know, you just need to sit down and do it and get some, you know, if you get some inspiration from somewhere, you know, that will help as well. But um, I still get anxiety, still get writer's block. And I will say through this journey, it's been actually, uh, I've been able to meet people and, and get new friends and especially in the writing space. So the women, the radio fellowship that I mentioned, I did that with three other ladies, including, uh, the editor in chief of Tostada magazine. So out of that experience, we kind of, uh, all of us four ladies kind of created, um, our own little group and community. So whenever I'm in, um, one of the ladies, she's Bangladeshi. She also recently started a blog because she had it prior, but you know, she, I guess she took a break and wasn't really working on it. And then she texted me one day and she's like, you inspired me to get back to my blog. So I was like, Oh, like it was just so, um, I, I just really loved hearing that. Cause like you said, when you're in your hole and you're being a creative and you're not sure if anybody's receiving what you're putting out there or, you know, if anybody's noticing or if you're having any type of influence. So that was just nice to hear. So having that community of support, um, is definitely, is definitely something I, I didn't have before in my writing journey. Um, so that's been extremely helpful. So whenever I, I feel anxious or I'm unsure, you know, I'll text one of the ladies and say, you know, oh my God, I'm trying to work on this, but I'm not sure. And she's like, girl, you got it. Just do it. <laughs> um, yeah. So I'm like a lot of anxiety. Um, a lot of, you know, when I'm brainstorming ideas to write about, it's like, um, I'm not sure if people want to read this because, and I, I try not to do it, but as you know, we get caught up in the numbers, right? So, you know, Definitely. I'll get caught up in yeah, looking at the numbers on Instagram or looking at the number of website visits. And I'm like, clearly I'm not going hard enough because the numbers are only this amount. And, oh my God, I guess people aren't really looking at this or people don't like this. Um, so that, and I think that really um, ties into when I'm trying to think of things to write about. And I'm like, eh, I don't really think people would like this or does this make sense? I think... A lot of a lot of times I tell myself I think people probably think I'm all over the place with the stuff I talk about because like I said I, in my head I'm like I'm trying to find that balance between being respectful of the history and our elders but also acknowledging like hey you know I do love to go to brunch I do love to drink wine I do love to travel and you know explore places like that through food. Um, oh, I so, understand that. I understand yeah. that. I, mean, I, I will write, I will like, oh, you know what? I have this, I've, I've been kind of 
<laughs> inching my way towards um, uh, a story that has has just always been kind of playing in the background of um, of my life. My grandmother on my mother's side believed that her mother was um, was from a Hopi Indian background, and mm-hmm. and they're one of the only tribes that really have kept their their land. Um, and you know, because I don't think anybody was trying to traipse up to the uh, the north rim of the Grand Canyon to colonize anything at this point, and that seemed like too much work. So they were they actually kept their own land but what they've been subjected to is a lot of um the mistreatment of their story and so the way people tell their story and talk about their culture um is has been just just wholly disrespectful like so many others and so i've always been intrigued about the um the role they've played in agriculture and what their food history looks like and things like that so i've yeah i keep, keep putting my toe in that water and like pulling it out like is anyone going to even read that and at the same time i'm prepared to write a three-page dissertation on bourbon so it's yeah i understand <laughs> Trying to find like a balance about the thing. Cause I, you know, I always tell people I create from my curiosity. Like that's the sole sole thing that drives me is like, what am I curious about? And that could be a list of 15 different things that don't seem to all go together. And the only common factor between them all is me. And so I definitely understand like trying to find a way to balance your, like your public persona for, for people. Um, so that people aren't frustrated, you know, like trying to follow you like, oh, she doesn't have a thing that she's landed on. So whenever I go read something, it's always something different, which can work in your favor, but can definitely create some type of like pushback because uh, people like to have a theme. People like to right. have boxes and compartmentalization when it comes to other people because it helps you kind of understand them better. So if, yeah, if I can understand definitely if you're, if you're writing about brunch and then you're turning around and you're writing about like, you know, the, the lunch programs that the Black Panthers started, it's, you know, people are like, well, what's her thing though? Like, okay. Right. Does she like brunch? Uh, she all about this Black Power movement? <laughs> <laughs> what exactly do we understand? Exactly. <laughs> but yeah. I'm so happy you mentioned, I'm so happy you mentioned the Black Panthers because I love them. Like, especially, you know, the free breakfast programs. Like I said, like, when I was young, reading about civil rights and women, black and Black Power. Like, I love all that. And it's funny, like you said, like, yeah, it is my curiosity. Like you said, you know, like I'm interested in these people and what's going on in Detroit, but I also want to show like, I enjoy food. I have fun with it. I, I, you know, I like to engage with it. So, um, at the end of the day, you know, I try to, you know, really think about, well, fed and bougie is also me. Like you said, like I, I love brunch. I'm interested in all that stuff. And I'm also interested in, you know, this, culture of black empowerment and using food to empower people. So, um, it's definitely like, like you said that, uh, you know, seesaw in your head going back and forth, like, does this make sense? You know, am I confusing people? And then I, I do a lot of research on, um, blogging, you know, just the process, like how to put a blog together, how to create content. Like you said, a lot of, a lot of uh, blogs, especially in the food space are, are themed, you know, it's either, you know, the blog focuses on recipes about vegan food or recipe, paleo recipes or uh, keto or, you know, home cooked meals under 30 minutes, you know, stuff like that. So a lot of the times I'm like, well, do I fit in this space? Um, does it make sense for me? Like, right, right. Yeah, I ask those questions all the time. 
Well, I know, and it's like because people know most people know I'm a, a chef by trade. A lot of times, the expectation is, you know, they're going to my blog and they're looking for a recipe or some type of mm-hmm. cooking tip or hack, and I have none for them. <laughs> like, oh, about that, I don't really do that on my in, in my blog. I, you know, if I'm going to do anything when people are in a space to like wanting wanting to learn something from me, I usually am. A, I'm a technique person. I believe in being a technician before. Uh, um, a person who can, I mean, reading a recipe is definitely a skill and following it is a skill, but it's limiting. And mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm all about like, Hey, if you learn this technique, you can apply it to just about anything. And so for me, I kind of bypass the recipe thing. And um, so it is, it gets frustrating for people because they they have this expectation of a food blog and it's like, well, it's still, we're still talking about food. <laughs> And, you know, you're not right. going to show up. I'm not going to have this huge, you know, I'm not going to have a 900 pages of a bagel with like, you know, toasted sesame seeds on it. That's just not the life I have right now. It's not the one I'm interested in. Um, and because there's plenty of blogs already doing that. I mean, especially, sure. I mean, you know, if you want to know how to put together a good salad, look, call me, send me a text message. I'll tell you what to do. But I'm not going to, I don't want to take up bandwidth thinking about that. And it's not something that I'm curious about. And it could be because I've, you know, worked in food and it's not something I need to be curious about anymore. But at the same time, I feel like people don't, and it's, and it's, again, it goes back to like my own interest in food is like, there's a lack of depth when people talk about food and eating Mm -hmm. and dining and consumption. And because like, after you get into those, you know, spaces of, you know, just talking about food insecurity or, you know, things that are happening that are driven by food conversation and agriculture and things like that, you realize how deep that well goes. And most people are very cosmetic when they talk about food. And so it was like, I wanted to offer a voice that kind of deep dives into some other, some of the other issues and some of the capabilities of food and dining. Like, I feel like it's one of those things that, you know, I, I always tell people that work for me or that I manage, like, I think serving people food is one of the more honorable jobs in the world. And it's, for me, it's a very sacred space and I treat it that way. And so when I talk to people about what I do, they're kind of like, wow, you just have this real reference for what you do. I'm like, but you're feeding someone. You're, Mm -hmm. you're, you know, your hands are on something and they're consuming it. They're putting it into their own bodies. And I'm like, there's very few acts in the world that you engage in with another human being where they consume something you've created. So there's like, there's, I always feel like there is a sacred space about feeding people and what, what the abilities and capabilities are when you feed someone, like it's such a, a neutral territory. Like if you're having conflicts, it's a great place to like try to resolve a conflict is over a plate of food. And so like, there's so many issues within the black community that I feel like there's a very huge absence of like food in the mix with certain things. I feel like that might be part, you know, for me, I'm like, I'm always suspicious of that. I'm like, okay, well they removed nourishment from this space. And as a result, there's a lot of other things that came up in its place. So if you don't feed someone well, you leave them susceptible to other things. And so it's Mm -hmm. kind of like, you know, now you have communities that are riddled with diabetes and high blood pressure and, you know, strokes and all other types of food related or consumption related illnesses. So now you have high mortality rates in communities that people trace back to other things, but a lot of it goes right back to nourishment and food. And so, you know, I just found that those conversations for me were more interesting than just throwing up a recipe for mayonnaise, which I love, but 
no. <laughs> I feel like we have other things to talk about right now. So yeah. Um, now oh, to- for sure. Girl- and, uh, no disrespect, you know, cause I've met a lot of great black food bloggers as well. And I, I, I love that community as well because the energy is, um, you know, it, it's exciting and, you know, in their way, they're also pushing the narrative, you know, like a lot of times, like, like, as you, as I'm sure you well know in, uh, journalism and being creative or what have you, it's always, well, I can't find, you know, I don't know of any black journalists or I don't know of any black this, or I don't know any black bloggers. And it's like, you're like boy buyer, you know, whoever, just like, no, like that's, that's <laughs> <laughs> like they're out here, they're creating their own lanes. They are, you know, pushing their own stories. But like you said, you know, a lot of the food content I was consuming was recipes. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. It was either recipes or traditional media stories. And I'm like, mm, yeah, no, like you said, like, yeah, I, I wanna, there's stuff I want to talk about and that I'm interested in that I'm not completely seeing in either of those buckets. Right. And it's, I think because it is covered so extensively, there are, you know, I mean, there are definitely amazing in food at this point that are focused on food creation. And I think they are doing a beautiful job. And it's just like, but you know, to create a balance, you know, other, you have to, you have to step into some other waters. And it's like, you know, for me, my perspective is always going to be slightly different because I have worked in food professionally mm-hmm. and I've worked in kitchens and restaurants. And so my, my point of view is always going to be slightly colored with that. And so I feel like I can always find a great intersection between the two. So that's why I was just like, well, I feel like there's space for everyone. And, you know, thankfully, you know, I think there's a, a blessing to ha- not having a ton of uh, voices in the game that are black voices or voices of color is because we do have to create our own lane and we do have to create our own space. And so now we have a bit more control of those mm-hmm. spaces. And so it allows us to have a bit more um, uh, a brevity about it. And it's not that we're kind of put into a, a single box because we're used to that. You know, I told people when you look at a restaurant and we talk about restaurants and black owned restaurants and things like that, most people pigeonhole us into kind of the soul food space and oh. kind of, <laughs> okay. Okay. I feel, like I feel like I struck a nerve uh, that, you know, we may have to just, uh, you know, maybe do some bonus content around that one. Um, <laughs> I feel like we could both probably go in on this pretty long uh, when it comes to that. Cause I'm always like, I have a bone to pick with whoever decided that this was all black people were good. Um, right. Cause while we do love, and I think it's, it makes it hard for us to like enjoy it because people are like, well, of course you enjoy it. You're black. You're like, okay, come on here. Like right. <laughs> other cultures are out here braising their greens, other cultures, you know, they, they, they cook with pork uh, in their greens and then other ones actually fried fish as well and fried chicken as well. And there's ones that are using smoke to cook their meat and like other cultures do these things and they might be heavily influenced by ours, but they are doing it. So why is it that we get pigeonholed into these spaces and um, I'm not allowed to like cook anything else? I don't understand. So like, right. you know, like I'll have, have moments where someone's like, Hey, I'm, you know, I, I work a lot of private chef, um, uh, scenarios now for myself, like outside of my nine to five and I'll get requests and they have no idea what I look like or who I am and what my background is. 
at, at initially. And then I'll walk into the building or walk into someone's home to prepare this meal and they just look a little panicked. Um, because the menu I propose to them, they don't have a face to go with it. And this is what I yeah. love about it is because I have this anonymity when I'm, when we're in conversation, they can't really see what I look like. And then usually what will happen is someone will go, Oh, I'm like, Hey, your, your event is coming up in a week. I just wanted to check in, make sure we're good. And that's when they'll decide to visit my Facebook page or go look at my website. And then they see I'm this person of color. And then there's like this slight panic of, so uh, about the menu, um, I'm just like, okay, you must have seen wow. picture. <laughs> and you're like, this woman has proposed a Korean menu for my, for my event and I love it. And now, and now I'm saying that she's black and I don't know what I'm going to get. And I'm just like, okay, um, let's talk about it. <laughs> it's going to be all right. Yeah, and it's like, do you uh, pose that question to any other chef who would, you know, propose a Korean menu? Like, I, I don't, yeah, like, no, because um, to your point, and then like when I travel, you know, um, I think I was, I was doing this unconsciously, but I, I've been doing it more consciously. So when I travel, I try to make sure I visit at least one black owned restaurant in that city. Um, and that's how it was to a quick uh, side note, um, it was really interesting to me because once I started doing that, I started noticing similarities, like you mentioned earlier, between like a Detroit and what's going on. And, you know, it, Oakland reminds me of Detroit and, you know, uh, Baltimore, you know, they're doing a lot of similar, you know, it's all kind of similar, like they're all in the same family. So to me, and it was really interesting to see that. And then, um, but yeah, when, when I go travel and I look up places to eat that are black owned, it's always soul food. And of course there's a place for, you know, there's a history behind it, but I personally did not grow up eating soul food. Like I said, my mom, she was a single mother. Um, so I was raised between her and my grandmother and they weren't farmers. Like I don't come from that history as well. So for me, uh, going back to identity, I'm like, well, do I not fit in this? Because like I said, I didn't grow up eating soul food. You know, soul food isn't the first thing that comes to my mind when I'm thinking of something to eat. So, you know, like you said, just, yeah, it's <laughs> working. <laughs> that is just, oh my God. Oh, wow. I, I just, I don't know what else. And also I'm like, I don't know what, what more do you want us to do um, to help you? And it, it's funny on the, I was like on my drive home tonight, I had a thought. And again, I will probably spend the rest of the evening talking myself into writing a blog post about it. But um, I had a thought about how, um, um, a lot of times black people in certain professions are not seen as technicians. They mm-hmm. aren't considered the people, we aren't considered the people who look at the finer detail or the ones that are, you know, are thinking of, they don't think about us for jobs that require a tremendous amount of detail. Um, when mm-hmm. I think about my, the, all the episodes of like chef's table and things that I love to watch and consume, um, you know, because of just my work in general. But then I think back to this idea of like plating and a molecular gastronomy and things like that. Mm-hmm. And the absence of black voices in those specific spaces in food. And because of this idea that, you know, we're kind of more bull in a china shop and not about refinement and finer detail and, you know, like to, to the conversation, you know, and those speaks to the, those, that speaks to the conversations I've had about Black people in fine dining because there is mm-hmm. this, you know, because there is this very meticulous space that they don't believe Black people live in. 
And so, you know, my, the question started kind of rolling in my head about why don't they consider us to be technical about things and technicians when it comes to what we do. And I think that does kind of speak to this idea of soul food and putting us into this space that, okay, well, soul food doesn't require a finer touch. Soul food doesn't require a level of technique. It's just, you know, you turn on some hot oil, you, 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 flour something up, you drop it in some hot oil, or you put the the greens, uh, you wash the greens, you cut them, you put them in a pot and you just let them cook until they disintegrate almost. Like there's, they feel like there's no refined space to that type of cooking. And so, you know, it's almost like, well, that infers that we don't think about technique and we don't think about those finer points and those smaller details and those actions that require focus and um it's not a lot of movement but it does require a lot of thought and so it's just like because i you know when i think about conversations around hip-hop same thing it's like well hip-hop you know hip-hop artists aren't technicians they aren't musicians they aren't you know what i mean it's just like well whoa 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 whoa, whoa hold up hold up um back up a minute that's not right. true None of that is true. And so like, I think about someone like Dr. Dre and, you know, what he does as a producer. And I'm like, that is a tremendous amount of science and technology and detail Mm -hmm. and execution that people don't consider if they don't know what it takes to be a music producer. Just the the fact that you're sitting at this board with 3,000 knobs and buttons and lights and everything else, and he knows what they all do. And, mm. and the result they're all going to create. And so the fact that they've kind of removed us from this space of craftsmanship and, and, mm-hmm. and technical, um, technical expression, it's just, I think that kind of plays into why soul food has kind of been this box they put all of us in. It's like, well, you guys don't really think about details that way. Like you don't really need to quote unquote plate you know, fried chicken and greens and, and, and mashed potatoes. That's not something that requires this refined plating. And so you kind of go, okay, yeah, like you, you, you eat your food, you know, you go to a, a barbecue place or, um, uh, yeah, a, a barbecue restaurant is like, well, everything's served on a cafeteria tray or a sheet, a metal sheet tray and on paper, mm. in a, in a boat, in a paper yeah. boat, you know? And it's like, well, that doesn't require a ton of yeah. thinking and plating. You just, it's some tongs and you just slap it in there and hand somebody a stack of napkins and they go at it. And I'm just like, Ooh, okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Oh, and I also okay. think uh, the Im- I also think the imagery of soul food is very limiting because I guarantee you know what do we think of when you hear soul food? Fried chicken, mac and cheese, candy yams, collard greens, oh. and like you said, it's in that box. And I'm like that doesn't equ- always equate to soul food, especially like what we said earlier when we have like issues with our health and diabetes and obesity. I'm like. Soul food could be, like we said, um, eating plant-based food, you know, eating black-eyed peas and, you know, uh, uh, sweet potatoes that are now doesn't, you know, it's not drenched <laughs> sugar and all that stuff like that. So or marshmallow on it. And- right, right, right. <laughs> so I, I, that always, you know, bothers me because I'm like... That this, you know, you're really, like you said, putting it in the box and you're very, you're making it very limited and you're dumbing it down. That was part one of our conversation with Brittany Hudson. Be sure to come back around tomorrow and catch part two of that conversation. The Afro's a Nice podcast is available on iTunes, Anchor, Google Podcasts, 
Spotify, and anywhere else you may podcast. New episodes are available every Tuesday night. And don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. And be sure to leave us a comment on the episode page or in the podcast page. Um, if you enjoyed an episode, if you have questions, or if there is a uh, recommendation for someone we should interview. So we'll catch you on part two.